the sensory overload of cities in India can be overwhelming. It might also change how you view the world. Just ask Martin Sheen. Finally, when I did surrender to where I was and what was going on, it had a profound effect on me, and particularly no place greater than India. Mark Van Honecker tells us how his job as a pilot provides a rare view of the world's cities. And then we land in these cities, and we experience them in, in a really unique way. We see them again and again, and, and we come to know them almost uh, like distant relatives. While Chandler O'Leary reminds us how no two islands are alike when you hop around the San Juan Islands of the Pacific Northwest. And I think it's important to view a trip to the San Juan Islands through the lens of conservation and protection. She recommends her favorites, including some of the tiny ones where you can enjoy being all alone. Let's explore the world together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Actor Martin Sheen tells us how filming on location has sometimes shown him realities that changed his worldview. And an intercontinental pilot explains how his stops in exotic cities around the world help him to better appreciate his own hometown. It came as quite a shock to find out that our first guest on today's program passed away suddenly. It was only a few weeks after she came to our Travel with Rick Steve studio to tell us about her latest book. Chandler O'Leary sketched charming watercolor illustrations on her many visits to the islands of Washington State and British Columbia. She added breezy narratives and maps to produce a delightful guide. It's called On Island Time, a Traveler's Atlas. Let's celebrate Chandler's life and the places she loved with an interview we recorded about the San Juan Islands. In the far northwest corner of the Pacific Northwest, hundreds of islands dot the coast just offshore from Seattle and reaching out beyond Vancouver, B.C. They're split right down the middle by the border between the United States and Canada. And on the U.S. side, the islands are known as the San Juan Islands. I had the great pleasure of exploring them as a child on my mom and dad's boat. And today, the Washington State Ferry System connects mainlanders to many of these islands with ease so that Anybody who wants to can spend a few days on island time. And that's the name of Chandler O'Leary's illustrated travel atlas. And she's designed that as a love letter to these islands. Chandler joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to help us plan a getaway to the natural wonder and the hidden delights of the Pacific Northwest in the San Juan Islands. Chandler, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So good to be able to talk about this with all of our friends on the radio because I basically grew up in the San Juans on our parents' boat. And it was such, even now, you know, decades later, I'm so thankful we had the chance to enjoy the San Juan Islands. What a lucky kid you were. Oh, man. I can just imagine. So, Chandler, you've written a book based on your love of these islands, and it sure comes across. And the cool thing about your book is... You wrote the text, and you also illustrated it. Yes. Kind of a weird niche that I occupy, but it's... I'm so jealous of I, I see people <laughs> on the ferries with their sketch pad. You know, I've got my camera. You might have seen me. That, might, that have, might have been me. That might have been, yeah. The cool thing about this is it's so many-layered, and we've got people who live there in a community that's sort of parallel to all the tourism that comes mm-hmm. and goes. Mm-hmm. We've got all the nature-loving going on. We've got the Native American heritage. In fact, the sea was called by Native Americans the Salish Sea, right? Yes, and actually now that's its official name on both the American and Canadian side. Not everybody knows that yet. The word's getting right. out. But yeah, the Salish Sea. I think it's such a beautiful name for this very nice. region. Yeah, the Salish Sea as opposed to what? What was it before? Well, there's Puget Sound that's south of there. Right. And then north of there is the Strait of Georgia on the Canada yeah. side. But where the... You know, the and si- the Juan de Fuca Straits. That's right. So and you got Georgia 
you got Puget, Captain Puget, Puget. and you got Juan de Fuca, Spanish yep. explorers. So all of these Europeans got to name them. Right. But there were already names before that. Exactly. So it's nice to have this nod to the people who've lived there for millennia and yeah. who are still there today. Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of history. Something that is very quirky about this corner is there was actually a little cute war between America and Canada, right? This <laughs> is a little war for a treat. Yeah. The pig war. <laughs> the pig war. So everybody in, who goes to school in Washington State, when they take Washington State history, they have to learn about the, <laughs> the pig war. The pig war. What, what is the pig war? Well, if you go there, you'll find out all about it, especially around the 4th of July. They do a pig war barbecue and a reenactment. It was a kind of a, a standoff that lasted for about 12 years when the San Juan Islands were being first inhabited by white people, both Britain through Canada and the United States claimed the islands because the treaty between the two countries said, well, the borders between the islands, but they didn't specify which channel. Oh, that was a, a mistake. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> so both sides claimed the islands and they kind of had military bases there. And then one day a pig escaped from a, somebody's pen and an American farmer saw it eating his potatoes and he shot the pig. Turned out the pig was owned by Hudson's Bay Company, and both sides got angry, reported it to their militaries, and then there was this tense 12-year standoff over it. The only shots that were fired were over the pig. How did they sort it out eventually? Eventually, it had to go to arbitration, and Switzerland ruled in favor of the United States. Switzerland, 150 years ago, still so a force for peace. we got this lovely archipelago <laughs> of 400 islands thankfully, and I can go there without having to bring my passport. <laughs> so, and, and in the San Juans, there's three big islands, I think. Yes, right? and there's four that you can get to by ferry. So what, there's what San Juan the, Island. Those, yeah. That's the biggest one that's got the only town. Right. Orcas Island mm-hmm. is actually the largest in land area by a mm-hmm. tiny bit. There's Lopez Island. Those are the three big ones. Right. And then the ferry also will take you to Shaw Island. Okay, and there's people living on Shaw. There's a few. There's yeah. some nuns there as well. There's a long history of the nuns used to run the ferry terminal until about 20 oh, years ago. interesting. And each of these islands, though, at least Orcas and San Juan and Lopez, they have their character. They do. They're all different. They have different climates. San Juan and Lopez are somewhat similar. They both are in the rain shadow of the Olympic Peninsula, so they have a drier climate. Yeah. They have more pastures and uh. open prairies and balds. Uh. And they're a little more rolling, so they're a little easier for cyclists, especially Lopez. Orcas, on the other hand, is downright mountainous. It's got a mountain, Mount Constitution. It does. And it has old growth forests. It has waterfalls. It's such a different place. And it's just a few miles as the crow flies from the other islands. Yeah. Well, I mean, because the ferry like wends its way through there. And yes. it's so cute the way the ferry drops off here, drops yes. off there. And each community has a different personality. I was on Lopez, and, and they're the friendly island. They are they the friendly island. Get aisle. ready to wave because you yes. got to wave at everybody. But Orcas, on the other hand, I, I've got a lot of friends who are formerly really had intense lives, and they did big stuff in Seattle. Now they're retired, and they love Orcas. It's, a, it's got a real pride and a, yes. and a tight community. Yes. Orcas, people are really partial to their island. The island that I'm partial to is San Juan. I've spent the most time there. But my next-door neighbor goes to Orcas every year. Yeah. So she is an Orcas person all the way. Okay. <laughs> and what do you like about San Juan? Because that is the one with the most tourism. Anybody mm-hmm. with a boat goes to Roach Harbor or Friday Harbor. Yes, that's right? true. It can be frustrating as there's so many tourists there. But I love it because of its variety. There's so many different things to do there. There's forests. There's a little bit of mountains. There's these bald prairies. There's foxes. And there's whale watching. And then there's the town of Friday Harbor. I love all these different things that come nice. together. Oh, that's great. Now, 
are the San Juans being loved to death by tourism and also short-term rentals? Because that's an interesting yes. thing. Yes, I think this is definitely an issue, especially in recent years. And I think that we need to find a balance in a symbiotic relationship because right. there really isn't much industry anymore on these islands. So, so they need the tourism. The yeah, they yep. need it. Yep. However, it's a fragile ecosystem. There's hardly any water on the island, so they have to be very careful about that. And it really can support only so many humans at a time. And I don't live there either, so I'm a visitor myself, a right. frequent visitor. And you're sending a lot of people with right your here, book. Right here, yes. Uh, so I write about this in the book, and I think it's important to view a trip to the San Juan Islands through the lens hmm. of conservation and protection. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Chandler O'Leary was a gifted illustrator and a creative guidebook author. We were deeply saddened to learn of her passing in early April. As a tribute, we're bringing you the interview we had just recorded in February. It's about the nearby San Juan Islands that we have both loved to visit. You'll find links to her book, On Island Time, a Traveler's Atlas, with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Chandler, we've talked about the big islands, I grew up on Susha Island, which it's a state park, and you yes. can only get there with your own boat, right? There's a water taxi from Orcas. I took that water taxi because I don't have a boat. My dad <laughs> had a boat, and he's, he's no longer with us. But uh, I love the little tourist ferry that goes from yes. Orcas over to Susha, and I had a wonderful day there. Susha is wonderful. It's one of my favorite places in Washington State, actually. What do you like about Susha? I love how it feels huge because you can, yeah. you know, the view changes wherever you go, but it's this teeny little island. You can walk around it in less than a day. Oh, yeah. There's all these little surprising views and bays around every corner, and you can find little moments of solitude, even though there's always a lot of people there, yeah. especially in the summer. It does feel like you can take a good hike, but mm-hmm. you're always close to a, an exotic bay. I mean, these bays oh, are yeah. just with this beautiful rock formations. Mm-hmm. There's a this mushroom. Carved sandstone. Do you remember mushroom rock? Yes. I had my first little boy crush with another girl camping at the next campsite, and I remember holding hands with her at Mushroom Rock. (laughs) Oh, that is great. I think that's what is the key to these islands is that we form these important memories of our lives there, and then we remember them always. And so We do. You know, I I come back, and I remember the last time I was there. One time I saw a family of river otters coming down, and I was the only one who saw them, and they were gone so fast, and I never thought I'd ever see that. It's just a shallow bay is opposite Fossil Bay. Mm-hmm. And Shallow Bay is called that because it's shallow. Mm-hmm. And when the tide goes out, it's just one green bed of seaweed with bumps on it. Mm-hmm. And what we used to do, my mom taught us this, is we'd put on our old tennis shoes and we'd drag our feet across the bay. And when we hit a bump, it was a Dungeness crab. Oh, fantastic. And we'd flip it over. And if it was a male, we could, and it was six inches or whatever, we could keep it. That's great. When we went to the San Juans, we'd be going for a week. My mom would say, I got no meat, no fish, no protein. If we're going to eat, you're going to find it Catch in the it. bay. And we did oysters and butter clams and Dungeness yeah. crab and go in a little dinghy out to the head of the bay and cut up a dogfish and then hundreds of other dogfish come up. I mean, there Fantastic. was that, that natural wonder. To be honest, a lot of the lush and abundant sea life is no longer there. Mm. But you can still go tide pooling and beachcombing. Yes. Tell us about Tide pooling. Shallow Bay is a great place, actually, to go tide pooling. And especially, you want to look for a minus tide, and that's where the low tide is below zero. And that's where you're going to start seeing sea stars and the really interesting creatures, chitons, anemones. 
in some places there's actual pools where you can just see them sitting there. But in my experience on Susha Island, you kind of have to go hunting for them. And they're kind of on the sides or underneath of rock shelves. I, as a kid, I spent hours just looking into that wonder world of the tide pool. The tide goes out and some of the water is left in a dip in a rock. Yes. And then there's all those And there's little fish in there and crab. Yeah, and fantastic. Yeah. And then wandering around the island and learning about the Native American history, learning about the rum runners. Yes. There's a whole lot of smuggling going on in the last hundred years there, both of alcohol during Prohibition mm-hmm. and of human laborers. There was human yeah. trafficking going on on these islands, too. Some of them were used as fox farms in the early and 20th century. And there were century. chain gangs taken up there from prisons to yes. chop, hit the rocks and make gravel, I guess. And there was a weird hermit on nearby Mesha Island. He was the hermit of Mesha, and yeah. he used to give healing cures by mail order yeah. to people. <laughs> Interesting characters. Chandler O'Leary, thank you for writing your book on Island Time, a traveler's atlas for anybody who's interested in the island's in Washington State and up in British Columbia. It's just a beautiful book, and you illustrated it well. So just congratulations, and uh, thanks for stoking my memories of the San Juan Islands. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sharing them. Yeah. We'll continue our tribute to Chandler O'Leary on next week's Travel with Rick Steves with one of her earlier interviews about enjoying an inland West Coast road trip. We'll bring you Chandler's last interview with us about the Gulf Islands on our Canada Day edition of the show. You can view the legacy she leaves behind and a statement about her passing at ChandlerO'Leary.com. And that's without an apostrophe. Pilot Mark Van Honecker celebrates great cities, large and small, in just a bit. And we'll hear how one of my colleagues fights off intercontinental jet lag. But first, our friend Martin Sheen is back to share how his travels have changed how he views the world. Traveling for your work to other countries can open you up to ideas and realities that you might not have expected. And when you're a major Hollywood actor like Martin Sheen, being on location can lead to events and opportunities that aren't included in your script. Martin and his son Emilio Estevez have been busy promoting the re-release of their movie The Way, which takes place along the Community Santiago pilgrim route in Spain. After it first started showing internationally back in 2010, it inspired countless people to try walking the Camino for themselves. The Way was just brought back for a special one-day release at hundreds of theaters across the country. Martin's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain how his travels have contributed to a heightened sense of justice and how they've stimulated his political activism. That, along with his strong Catholic faith, have motivated Martin to join protests for workers' rights, environmental causes, and even to take a stand against controversial U.S. military operations around the world. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to see you in person and to have you here in our studio. Before we get into our... I want to talk about how travel has just inspired you to be involved and active in in important causes, but give us a little background on the film The Way. Uh, Why did you care about it, and and why are you re-releasing it? Well, one, of course, it was a family project uh, from beginning to end. My son, as you mentioned, Emilio, wrote it, directed, played my son, or I played his father. My wife was part producer, my son Charlie helped us finance it. Uh, we dedicated the film to my father, Francisco, in loving memory. He was a Gallego, which is the province where the Santiago de Compostela is uh, located. And I could not not do this film. I mean, it was a gift, and it turned out to be a miraculous one. You know, guys my age, I think I was 
what, 69, nearly 70 when I did it. Yeah. Uh, guys that age are not usually offered leading parts. That's right. That woman on the trail kept calling you the boomer. The boomer, right. And she right. didn't do it yeah. in a friendly way. <laughs> no, she didn't. No, no. So it was a, a combination of family, professionalism, and gratitude that met at this point that I could not not do this film, and I'm extremely grateful to my son. And for, the whole idea celebrates know. the value of thoughtful travel, really. Yes, very much Even so. broader yeah. than a pilgrimage, and as so much yeah. of your your work does, just reach out and, and embrace the world. Yeah, I didn't realize how much we were kindred spirits about the value of travel until you guys contacted me to collaborate on this yeah. re-release. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But we've both been sort of inspired by our travels, haven't we? Very much so. In fact, I had a profound turnaround in my life and one of the most important events in my life that literally changed the direction of my life was in India in 1981 when I went to do a a role in Gandhi. And I'd been in third world countries including Uh Central America and and, uh, the Philippines. uh, But I had never encountered so much horrible, horrible poverty on such a huge level. And, you know, poverty has a a look, of course, it, it has a dimension, it has a smell, mm-hmm. it has a an unbelievable power. It can draw you to itself or it can repulse you. And I was drawn and affected both ways. And luckily, uh, Emilio was with me, as a matter of fact, hmm. and he used to dive into these crowds of children and beggars on the street and come home barefoot with a pair of shorts. He'd given everything away, Whoa. literally. And he kept asking me, you know, you got when we'd have a day off or some free time, let's go out on the street. You got to see what's going on out there. You got to huh. go. And finally, I started going out, and it was life-changing. So that's interesting to me that even on a movie set where mm-hmm. there's so much riding on the health and the safety of every every yeah. player, mm-hmm. you actually were out there in the streets on your free time, apparently, and you yeah. had a curiosity and an interest a in A lot. That. We had a great number of people who were called extras or background right. people. They were people who lived in these locations. Okay, so you got... Who, you who got participated to... in these huge crowds. Uh, we were literally in a crowd on the Rajpath in Delhi for the yeah. recreation of Gandhi's funeral with one million human beings. And all over Delhi for weeks before the filming of the scene, there were flyers everywhere, come dressed of the period in 1948 and you know, join us to celebrate the father of our country, Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. That was... 81, right? 81, yeah. Mm -hmm. Three years before that, I went to India for my first time. And it's the first time I was aware of the gap between rich and poor. I didn't even think about it in my privileged little protected upbringing here in Seattle. Um, And I remember going across, I was in Tehran, and I was sort of leaning up as a poor backpacker, really, against a bank building in in Mm -hmm. Tehran. And and I saw there was these beggars and there was these wealthy people, obviously. And then you get to India and you just see it in, in vivid color. But at the same time, India became my favorite country to travel to because there's a lot of love and a lot of humanity, especially amidst that poverty. It's unbelievable. You see people who the only way to describe them is enviable joy. Yes. Because they're free. You know, I always say, people ask me, why do you like India? It walloped my self-assuredness, my ethnocentricity. And I like to say it rearranged all my cultural furniture. I thought I knew what pain was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what music was. And I got there and it's, I'm not wrong, but I'm not exclusively right. No. And you always know that you have a passport in your pocket and you can leave. These people will never 
for the large majority, ever be able to leave. They'll never see their name on a ticket, on a plane ticket. And that's a very important thing for us round-trip revolutionaries. It's unlikely you will ever see any one of those faces again in your life, that they're a gift for that time and place, and that's it. We're delighted to have Martin Sheen in our studio right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin and his son, Emilio Estevez, were with us here two weeks ago to talk about the re-release of their movie, The Way. It takes place along the Camino de Santiago pilgrim route in Spain. It played in cinemas nationwide a few days ago, and it'll be available soon on streaming services. If you missed that interview, you can listen to it from the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com radio. Look for program number 713. We're spending a little extra time with Martin today to talk about how he values what his travels have shown him around the world and how it can inspire us to take a stand on behalf of others when we get home. Martin, you're famously kind of a troublemaker when it comes to demonstrating for peace and justice issues. And <laughs> I'd say infamously in some <laughs> infamously. I can't believe it. I'm studying this, and you've been arrested 68 times for speaking up on issues. Have you ever thought that had you never traveled, you probably wouldn't have such of a difficult time with the law? No. <laughs> <laughs> you I mean, know, imagine uh, a Martin yeah. Sheen that had never traveled. <laughs> oh, no, I can't. No, I, I, he's dead and gone. He, he, God yeah, rest we, him, we wouldn't be talking know, to no, him now, right? No, I... Uh, I didn't go to many of these places uh, willfully. You know, I, it was a job, you know. Yeah. I, it's what I did for a living. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't determine the uh, location or the country or the culture, right. you know. So luckily I was taken into places that that finally when I did surrender to where I was and what mm-hmm. was going on, it had a profound effect on me and particularly no place greater than India. India, right. I mean, it just changed every f- fiber in my being. I was yeah. almost 40. I was, I was 40 years old, so it's half a lifetime yeah. ago. And since the awakening that happened, as, I, as you know, the, the expression I used, a, a friend of mine used to describe what changed him, I would subscribe to it too. I went into the third world and they cracked open my heart. Yes. And I, I have a suspicion oh, that that's what happened to you as well. Yeah. yeah. When I went down to Central America for my first time, my dad took me to the airport, and his last words were, son, don't be duped. (laughs) You know, I was a conservative back then. You know, I voted for Reagan, and my dad didn't want me to get my uh, Mm -hmm. understanding of the world screwed up by by going down there. And I realized after going down there that my dad and I had been duped. And uh, I just think it's... It complicates your life when you travel, if you're a caring person. Very much so, yeah. I went to uh, Nicaragua when... uh, the Sandinistas had just succeeded and Samosa had been driven out. So it was a new democracy. It was very exciting. And I was invited to come and to participate in their new democracy and to take home what I had witnessed to yeah. the United States. And, that, and I wrote President uh, Reagan and told him I was in country. I never heard from him, but they couldn't say at least that I didn't let him know I was going. And I got a letter when I got back. I was there for a couple of weeks, and I got a letter from John Poindexter, who was one of his uh, national security mm-hmm. advisors. And he said, uh, well, we, we did receive your uh, letter, uh, but frankly, you are well-meaning but misinformed. Yeah. And so after what I discovered there, I would uh, trust being well-meaning far more than being misinformed. Martin, as I mentioned earlier, you've been arrested 68 times, and I'm just curious if the number of arrests has been a measure of what causes are closest to your heart. If you think about your, your different times you've been uh, 
demonstrating and then arrested. What are the top three or four or five causes that you've been out on the streets for? The number one, and still is, is nuclearism. Uh-huh. Uh, we, you know, we came up through the Cold War where we were uh, on ready alert, you know, it yeah, seems that yeah. we never knew uh, by accident or design the world would end okay. with a nuclear confrontation. And then after that? Would be the environment. You know, they're all, well, nuclearism, of course, is, is connected to our militarism. You know, our nation spends at least 53% of our budget on on our militarism. And a lot of money for to make us safer, supposedly, exactly, yeah. but other and things might be a better well, investment. You know, we, you you know Europe so very well, and you see infrastructure, travel arrangements, and uh, security. You know, not just security, but uh, health and education. Right. How much more of their budgets goes to that? Because they don't have a huge army. And counterintuitively, you can make a case that it makes them stronger. Exactly. And yeah. that's the interesting yeah. thing. I'm I'm yeah. sort of into soft power instead of hard power. Exactly. So you have to yeah. say yes. We want yeah. to be safe. We want yeah. to be secure. And Martin, what about domestic travels and workers' rights? What What has your experience been on the road well, to be well, more tuned into that? Uh, yeah, we try never to stay at a hotel if we can help it that is not unionized, and sometimes uh-huh. we end up in youth hostels and other places along the way. But yeah, uh, unionized uh, labor. I was very influenced and inspired by uh, Cesar Chavez, and I got to know him a bit uh, toward the end of his life. In fact, he got me to uh-huh. quit smoking. And which I, yes. Well, just, yeah, that probably yeah, let you yeah. get arrested a few more times with a few the longer more times life. With Cesar. Uh, one of my heroes. You know, your, um, your son Emilio wrote that he remembers as a youngster watching you on TV being hauled away in handcuffs <laughs> and reciting the Lord's Prayer at the top of your lungs. And he said you almost looked possessed or like crazy. And yeah. it took Emilio years to understand the why of it. You know, what, what is the why of it? To, to be present in the time that I live and to have, if not an effect, at least an opinion. I don't think I've ever really changed any of policies, not towards homelessness, nuclearism, militarism, uh, education, whatever I was protesting against or for, I don't really believe that I had any effect, or at least it wasn't up to me to determine if I had an effect. Mm -hmm. The only effect I'm absolutely certain I created was on myself. Mm -hmm. And so that I own those experiences for myself. That's effect enough. Yeah, just me. I'm the only one that has changed, yeah. So I do it for myself. Actor and activist Martin Sheens, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at the transformative value our travels can have on our lives when we get to see for ourselves how the rest of the world operates beyond our home turf. You may know Martin as President Bartlett on The West Wing and Robert in Grace and Frankie, plus his roles in more than 100 motion pictures and as narrator for dozens of documentaries. In his movie The Way, Martin portrays a grieving father who encounters surprises from the people he journeys with on the Camino de Santiago Pilgrim Trail in Spain. The movie's been updated since it was first released and now includes a conversation we filmed together at a neighborhood pub just across the street from our radio studio. You'll find links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Martin, you've lived a life where you've been impacted by your travels and then you've been involved and engaged in the challenges of our world in a broad, in a global sense, as well as in a local sense. To me, there's three kinds of travelers. There's a tourist, there's a traveler, and there's a pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about that? No, not, not specifically, but you see them on the road. You know, yeah. you can, uh, How would you define the tourist, the traveler, and the pilgrim? 
they're on different economic scales as well. You know, there's first class and then there's all the way down to, uh, you know, uh, backpack and uh, youth hostel. So you can almost uh, imagine that some of the first class travelers who can afford to go anywhere and stay as long as they want, that you know, they're having a travel a vacation, you know. Right. They, the irony they, is the money they're spending builds a wall between exactly. what they could experience. Yes. That's but the when, danger. But when they run into the backpackers or, you know, the pilgrims, you know, there is a genuine interest and they're drawn because you see, very often you'll see at some of the, uh, uh, you know, major cities, uh, particularly in Europe, where you'll see uh, young kids with backpackers that are being dining with the first-class travelers at, at, you know, big outdoor restaurants or many of the plazas. And during the summer particularly, you'll see these kids are, you know, they're invited to join them very often because they want to know, where are you going? Where are you from? Why are you doing this? Where are you headed? They're a little envious. I wasn't going to mention that, but there is a bit Ah, of an envy. It's a lost opportunity. Yeah, because of the freedom. A lot of people think, well, you have to be young in order to do uh, this journey or to backpack and so forth. But you have to be in shape. You know, you have to be able to physically endure some of these things. But no one is ever left alone out on the road, no matter what your age or whether you've got a backpack or, you know, uh, your hands in your pockets and you're just headed somewhere. It's almost incumbent upon the people in all these countries uh, to provide hospitality. And it gives them an opportunity to be your host and to express their uh, gratitude for your coming. And do you have anything to you know, uh, share with us. You know, Martin, I love the notion of transformational travel. That's kind of what you're talking about. But it's Mm -hmm. a lot easier to say than to actually experience. With all of the travels you've done for your various sets on movies and so on, share with us a special moment far from home that was really transformational to Martin Sheen. Uh, Well, it was in India. It was a unforgettable moment where Emilio and I were surrounded by a crowd and mostly children and a police officer had to come and help us get through the crowd literally is in Bombay and he got us to a, a taxi and we got in the cab and began to move away from this community this neighborhood and I felt a presence a few blocks away from the community I looked around and there was a little girl hanging on to the taxi and her face was inches from mine outside and we said please stop the car and the driver stopped and we she couldn't speak English I, I guess she spoke Hindi you know yeah, but she yeah. wanted she wanted some some money she was in tatters and she had this most extraordinary mug uh, I, I call people's mug their yeah. mug shot you know the thing you're yeah. gonna remember yeah. I never forgot her and it was that sense of profound sense of envy in a way because she was so joy-filled just to have made this journey, these few blocks hanging on the back of our cab. And we told her driver, okay, let's put her inside and we'll take her back. And we did. And we shared what little we had at that time. And, you know, every time I'm traveling somewhere in third world, I always look over my shoulder. Is there anyone hanging on the back? Now, mostly they'll hang on to your heart, you know, and, uh, and that, that's what makes the difference. The people there that you know, as we mentioned before, you may never uh, and you're unlikely to ever see them again. And if I did see that little girl again, that was 40 years ago. But those I memories, Martin, those memories are the most beautiful souvenir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you take them home and then 
as we live our lives here and when we go into the privacy of the voting booth or however we, we make our decisions, if we remember the humanity of this planet, we can thank our travels for that. Yeah, very much so. Martin Sheen, thanks for joining us. And like they say when you're on the road, Bon Camino. Keep on traveling. Keep on traveling. <laughs> A transcontinental pilot celebrates the cities our work or vacations take us to and how it can help us appreciate the places we call home. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Did you ever stare at a globe when you were a kid and try to imagine the wonderful places you might get to visit someday? Mark Van Honecker did just that from his home in western Massachusetts. Now, he gets to touch down in all sorts of great cities for about 24 hours at a time as he pilots the Boeing 787 Dreamliner for a major international airline. Mark celebrates the cities he's come to love around the world in his latest book. It's called Imagine a City, a Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. Mark joins us right now from his home in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Mark, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, Rick. You have such an interesting um, story of how you got where you are now as a, a very worldly pilot of the most magnificent airplanes in the whole planet. Tell us kind of the story, uh, your childhood and your aspirations and, and how you made your dreams come true. So I grew up in Pittsfield, which is a small city in western Massachusetts. It's a really wonderful place in a lot of ways, but uh, one thing it lacks is an international airport. <laughs> And and so flying there really was, uh, for the most part, a dream. I had a lot of model airplanes, and I had a, a illuminated globe, uh, which I know has been an inspiration uh, to so many travelers, and, and so it was for me. I, I would turn that globe and look at the cities and read out their names, which were so often just names to me, just places I could only begin to imagine someday seeing. And as I grew up, I wasn't really sure how to become a pilot, so I, I my life sort of zigzagged into other other realms. I worked in the business world for a while, but eventually I, I thought, you know, maybe there's a chance to make this dream come true. And I eventually started my flight training in the UK. So I'm based for work at London's Heathrow Airport. And, you know, every week I get to go to a city that I dreamed of seeing when I was a child, spinning that globe in my childhood room. And I've never gotten tired of that wonder. You know, the bug of travel is much like the bug of flying. And I, I seem to have a bad case of both. <laughs> well, you know, you and your illuminated globe, I, I was the same way. I just, I had a, an old globe. I still have it. It was a gift to me when I was a little grade schooler. And I remember even at the University of Washington, I would take, when I was studying at the big library, they had a map room that had these big atlases and globes. And I would just go there and it's amazing gazing at an atlas or gazing at a globe, how you think about these places and, and they become very romantic and, and you want to go see them. And what you've written is kind of a, a love letter to the urban world. And it's interesting, with your book, you could have just focused on all these great cities, but you brought it back to your hometown. Uh, in fact, the book is dedicated, quote, to my first city, to Pittsfield. Well, you've seen the world, and what is it about your little hometown that is so important to weave in so intimately into your book and, and your report? You know, growing up in, in Pittsfield, uh, and having those dreams of flying off to other places, you know, you know, wanting to leave your hometown and, and find your way in the world, especially if you come from a smaller place, you know, that's not a news story. Uh, but a pilot sees the wider world in a way that almost nobody else does. You know, we, uh, we see it from above. We cross over so many cities and mountain ranges and deserts and oceans. And then we land in these cities and we experience them in, in a really unique way. We see them again and again and, and we come to know them almost uh, like distant relatives. 
But as I've gotten older, I've come to understand uh, how much my heart is still in that small hometown. You know, a, a hometown is almost like a first language, I think. And and maybe that's especially true for travelers because we, you know, we go huh. to so many other places and we're always thinking about how it's different from where we came from. That's why we travel in the first place, uh, I think. And so imagine a city as a travelogue. It's about going to Tokyo and Cape Town and Delhi and some of the most beloved cities in the world. But it's also about going home, about taking uh, the long way home. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I spent 100 days a year since I was a kid overseas. And travel is a lot easier if you are rooted and you love your hometown. I always like to say I can look out my window and I can. I can look out my window literally right here today and see my junior high school, the place I went to school wow. when I was 12 years old. So I, I've traveled a lot, but it's easy to travel a lot when you know where your home is, and I just really value that. So I can kind of understand your love of, of Pittsfield. Tell us a little bit how you compare cities, great cities to great cities, or great cities to beloved hometown. You know, I uh, there's a scene uh, early on in Imagine a City where I, I talk about going to Malacca. Uh, so I, I've flown from London to Kuala Lumpur, and then um, because uh, I've been to Kuala Lumpur a few times, I thought, oh, let me try to go somewhere else. So I, I got on a bus and I ended up going to Malacca. You know, that's a, a fabled city. Uh, it's on the old spice routes. You know, it has a, a glorious history all its own. And and I was there, I think, in January. And I walked along the river there and there was a curve in the river. And I, and I thought, oh, this reminds me of, the, of a curve on the Housatonic River in Pittsfield that I grew up walking along. And I was so struck by the idea that uh, having traveled so far, I would uh, be reminded of home. And it wasn't anything I set out to feel or, or to think about, but it, it arises naturally. And, you know, I've organized this book, uh, Imagine a City, by sort of themes in cities that I've come to know. Uh, and, you know, and cities do have a lot in common. You know, we often speak of cities, uh, you know, the city of angels or the city of light. Well, there's quite a few cities of light, you know, and... Ah. and uh, that's another way of, of thinking about what cities have in common and how travel highlights both difference and similarity. And I want to talk more about that in just a sec. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting a lofty pilot's view of the world's great cities right now, and we're talking with Mark Van Honecker. He flies a 787 Dreamliner, and his newest book is a celebration of the cities he's come to know and to love. The book's called Imagine a City, a pilot's journey across the urban world. You can find out more about Mark and his work on his website. That's markvanhoneker.com, and that would be spelled V-A-N-H-O-E-N-A-C-K-E-R. So, Mark, yes, cities have these themes, the city of light, the eternal city, the city of gates, and so on, and you've collected them in your book, Imagine a City. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the themes. Um, you know, I, I, you've got cities of poetry, What's, what's an example? Why would you call a city a city of poetry? So, you know, I find one of the most interesting ways to connect to a city is through a personal connection we might have to it. And in college, I made a friend, a poet named Kiran Kapoor. Her family has long-standing ties to Delhi. And she introduced me to the poetry of, of that city. And, and then when I started going to Delhi, I would find myself going to the, the houses of its old poets, or I would read a poem and then go and see the place that it was written about. Whoa. I think it's uh, Shiraz in Iran that's known as the city of poets. And people go there almost as a pilgrimage to go to the, the tombs of the great poets. So maybe different cultures yeah. have different cities that are known for that. 
الا ای که بر خاک ما بگذری به خاک عزیزان که یادآوری که گر خاک شد سعدی او را چقم که در زندگی خاک بوده است هم indeed and of course pitsfield uh, is not generally known as a city of poetry but herman melville wrote uh, moby dick in pitsfield and he he wrote a poem about uh, and he wrote many poems about um, cities that we all love to travel to about or about rome and jerusalem and Um, but he did also write uh, a poem which is set in Pittsfield uh, on a lake that I grew up swimming in. Huh. Mark, what's another theme that um, struck you as interesting and, and great cities had in common? Well, one of the themes that I find most um, compelling about cities is, is gates. Now, we don't think of, of cities in, the U- in North America or in the U.S. at least having many gates because when most American cities were founded, we didn't uh, need defending from the people who were outside the city. Right. Uh, but of course, cities are, uh, for millennia, they have existed to protect their inhabitants. And cities have taken down most of their gates, but but not all cities have. So, in, you know, in London, <laughs> you know, you have so many gate names, uh, Bishop's Gate, Aldgate, uh, Moorgate, and often they've given their name to the neighborhood, even though the gate isn't there anymore. And you kind of think, why is this place called Moorgate? And then you look it up and you realize right. that um, yeah. there was a gate there. You know, it is interesting. You can look at a map, and, and when you know what to look for, you can read a lot of history in it. As, as a tour guide, I love to point out circular roads uh, oh, that used yeah. to be walls. Yeah. If, if there's yeah, a circular indeed. road, it was a wall. And the, the, the walls are long gone because you got congested traffic and you got this ingrown wall. Tear down the wall and you've got a circular boulevard. And you've got all the gates, and they happen to be traffic circles now. And a lot of times the gate will still be standing, and it looks like a solitary gate, but... You got to remember it was part of that wall, and that would be the entryway to the city. And today, it's not the entryway to the city anymore because people fly over it. But it's it's fascinating to look at that, the echoes of the past, even though Indeed. we fly in. Gates are are one of cities' most poetic aspects. Even when the gates no longer exist, but they survive in in, in the kind of ways that that you're describing, it's it's lovely. And you can see them from above. You know, you, you fly over over Western Europe at night, and you can see the ring roads because they're lit, and, and obviously in, in a circular pattern. Uh, we, you know, we watch Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, and, and that sense of coming to a city and and it being guarded and what it meant to be inside versus outside. Um, it's, I think it's in our culture, even, wow. uh, even, even when the actual gates aren't. I was just thinking, I know you write a, a great bit about London, and uh, it's one of your favorite, well, that's where you've, you've chosen to live, along with Pittsfield. And um, what a beautiful thing it is to be able to fly in and, and see this wonderful collection of, of world-famous landmarks that you just get a, an overview from the air. I know that uh, you pointed out in your book, Imagine a City, how London is just unique that way. And London is the city that I... I think I enjoy from a sightseeing point of view more than almost any other city. Yeah, and for travelers today, that's, uh, you know, London is, is one of the most wonderful places to fly into if the wind is from the west and you mm. you fly in. You know, I fly into London several times a week, so it's easy to forget about it, that kind of wonder of flying into a city. And, and London is such a good example of it because so many people on any flight I do will be coming to the city for the first time And if they look out the window, they're going to see Tower Bridge and the Tower of London and St. Paul's Cathedral and uh, the Houses of Parliament and all the parks and the palaces. And, you know, if you travel a lot, it's easy to forget what what that would look like to someone coming to the city for the first time. I try to remember 
how amazing it looked to me the first time I did it. Pilot and author Mark Van Honecker is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's known for his books Skyfaring and How to Land a Plane, as well as columns he writes for the Financial Times and for the New York Times. He's recently written a book called Imagine a City, a Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. You can find links to our previous interviews with Mark in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Mark, when I, when I think about the value of travel and how small our world is getting, I feel like flying can be a force for peace and stability on our planet. I feel like there's a big discussion in our, in our age of what do we want to do, build walls or build bridges? And are there, is there fear in our society and... And is that a constructive or a destructive and a dangerous thing? What's your sort of takeaway from all of this as far as people being comfortable with the world and, and the value of flying from, from your point of view as a pilot? For me, as a, as a child kind of dreaming of, of being elsewhere and of, and of going to these distant places, the, the power of connection and, and the ability of airplanes to bring us together was very palpable to me even from a young age. I've had some personal experiences thanks to airplanes that have been some of the most meaningful in my life. I had a lot of pen pals when I was a kid. Cause, you know, that was still a thing <laughs> when I was a kid. And I had a, uh, a pen pal in Australia. And, you know, the, kind of the whole point of having a pen pal in Australia when you lived in Western Massachusetts was that, that you would never meet them. Uh, and yet, you know, 15 years after I became a pilot, I flew a 747 to Sydney and I had I was able to meet up with my pen pal, who by then was middle-aged, like me, obviously. And uh, and we had the most amazing, amazing evening just talking about how our lives went and and what were, we remembered of those early letters. And, you know, and I feel another way to think about your question is, you know, obviously airplanes became, you know, widespread or commonplace before computers really took off. But I wonder, you know, 300 years from now, what will seem like the greater miracle, like being able to send an email across the world, you know, if that had happened first, and then suddenly 30 years later, we could actually fly there. I think we might think the airplane was the greater miracle. And of course, the pandemic has really uh, reminded, I think all of us who love travel and who think the world needs more connection, not less of the importance of one-to-one human interactions. And of course, you know, so many flights I do, you know, we see those reunions in the baggage hall or, you know, outside the customs hall, where we see a, a family meeting a, a relative they haven't seen for a long time. You know, I think we must have that in common, Rick, that we believe in the power of human connection. Yeah, it's so fundamental. Well, Mark, thank you for taking your unique perspective as a pilot and uh, letting us, through this book, Imagine a City, think more about the value of connection. And we get that through travel, and we travel, thankfully, because we have airplanes and pilots like you. Best wishes, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. How do you cope with the jet lag you're likely to feel when you finally reach your destination after a long transcontinental flight through many time zones? Cameron Hewitt's a senior editor and researcher at Rick Steves Europe, and he's a guest with us on Travel with Rick Steves from time to time. He files this report for us as he shakes off the desire to take a nap when he landed in Rome after a long flight from Seattle. 
I just landed in Rome after a 15-hour flight from Seattle. I've been awake for about 30 hours, and right now, I'm just trying to stay awake. Hi, I'm Cameron Hewitt. Being in Europe is a blast, but flying to Europe can be miserable, especially that first afternoon, culture-shocked and deliriously sleep-deprived. At times like these, travel is mind-bending and tedious. My one strict jet lag rule, never let yourself sleep a wink before a reasonable local bedtime. But this afternoon in Rome, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Okay, here's the plan. I'll go on a sort of a zombie tour of Rome's famous landmarks. That'll keep me moving and might just remind me why I'm enduring this self-imposed torture to begin with. I stumble across town to the Trevi Fountain. It's helping. The humid air, the tourists tossing their coins, the mesmerizing sound of flowing water. Okay, I better keep moving. So, I follow the promenading tourists to the Spanish Steps. Another mob scene. A cascade of loitering humanity flows down that famous staircase. It's a united nations of tourists jabbering at each other as they snap their selfies. But soon... Those sounds also fade into a lullaby. All right, move along. Next up is my favorite spot in Rome, the Pantheon. This ancient temple, 1,900 years old, still has a perfectly intact dome. And the piazza out front is fun and lively. Kids are playing in fountains, while their parents are paying way too much for a cocktail at a rickety table. The photos I take come with rainbow streaks from those neon-lit whirligigs that street vendors are shooting up into the air. But suddenly, those rainbows are replaced with miniature freckles on my lens. It's drizzling. Great. When you're jet-lagged, bad weather is your worst enemy. At this point, caffeine is my only hope. I scurry a couple of blocks away, dodging umbrellas that pop open all around me, to the Café Sant'Eustachio. My guidebook says that it's one of Rome's most venerable coffee houses, but I don't care about that. Right now, I just need to caffeinate. This was a good choice. The old-school coffee house has a long counter, rich wood decor, and an old-fashioned espresso machine. I join the other refugees from the rain at the busy bar. Baristas hustle to fill orders. Tiny spoons clink against the rims of antique little cups, like pinpricks to my drooping brain. The espresso arrives. I take a sip, and then it happens. I look up from the cup of coffee at the classic convivial hubbub all around me, and I realize, hey, I'm in Europe. Over the years, I've come to collect and savor these first-night, hey, I'm in Europe, epiphanies. It's the one thing that makes jet lag worthwhile. I leave the cafe with a caffeine-fueled spring in my step. A street violinist serenades me, filling me with confidence that, after a good night's sleep, tomorrow will bring a vivid new world of sunshine, sights, sounds, and unforgettable experiences. And that coffee wasn't bad either. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Casmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
Monday Night Travel. It's a weekly travel party, and you're invited. Zoom in and have some fun learning about Europe's art, history, culture, and food over drinks and snacks. It's free, it's an adventure, and be careful, it can be addictive. Join me and my travel buddies over Zoom for Monday Night Travel. We're live every week, starting at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Register at ricksteves.com and BYOB.